Welcome to Black Mountain College Radio, a podcast from Black Mountain College Museum and Arts Center. I'm Jeff Arnell, Executive Director. Each program in our series focuses on various topics related to Black Mountain College and Black Mountain College Museum and Arts Center. By presenting dynamic programming of this nature, we hope to deepen your relationship with both the college's vital legacy and the work of our Asheville-based museum. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Black Mountain College Radio. I'm Carmelo Pampolonio. Our third episode has two segments, the first being an interview with Tony Rolando and Kelly Kelbel, the founders of Make Noise, a modular synthesizer company based in Asheville, North Carolina. The Make Noise crew will be giving a talk and performance at Black Mountain College Museum and Arts Center on Friday, July 21st at 7 p.m. They'll discuss their aesthetic credo and their newest module, the Morphogene, a next-generation tape and microsound music module. The event is free and open to the public. Music for this episode is provided by Tony Rolando and Walker Farrell from Make Noise. The second segment explores the life and works of Frank Hirsch, a painter who studied at Black Mountain College and continues to paint to this day. The exhibition titled Frank Hirsch, Marking Space and Place, curated by Brian Butler, is free and open to the public now at Black Mountain College Museum and Arts Center. So we'll now go to the interview with Tony and Kelly, which took place in Tony's office overlooking scenic West Asheville. Thank you, Tony and Kelly, for joining us live from Make Noise. I wanted to start with a more general question I've been curious about. Make Noise has been making modular synthesizers catering to experimental musicians and sound artists for almost a decade now. Can you talk about the organization's philosophy behind experimentation and process? Yeah, sure. So, so in, you know, in the, whole, the whole philosophy of the instrument developed over, over a long period of time. It's not something where we woke up one day and decided we were going to start this company that made this instrument that did this thing. Uh, you know, initially we weren't even thinking of making a complete make noise instrument. We were just uh, interested in supplying additional modules to the Dopefer system, which is what most companies were doing at that time. There really wasn't that many companies making modules at that time. And Dopefer already had a full line, so we figured we'd fill in those gaps where we could find them. And it wasn't until about three or four years in that we could see maybe creating an instrument that could be a, a purely a make-noise instrument. And I think the philosophy has always been a, a few things. One, sort of abstracting the user from their, their uh, more traditional processes. Uh, for example, reading things on, on faceplates or, or looking at screens in an effort to understand the process that they're trying to perform. Uh, and then also uh, trying to provide a, a complete experience, something that feels inspirational. And, and, and so that's, I think, to some degree why uh, there's a lot of artists that are very attracted to what we do, and there's a lot of artists that are, are very unattracted to what we do, almost to a point of, of hating it. And I think it's because maybe we, we, are very, uh, we have a very specific aesthetic that appeals to some and doesn't appeal to others. But yeah, I guess uh, mostly just abstracting things to a point that it encourages experimentation or perhaps uh, um, happy accidents. And in addition to that, I guess also uh, the idea of, of not, rather than uh, the human controlling the machine, the human collaborating with the machine is also another important thing, I think, especially with, with our instruments, but in my opinion, with any electronic musical instrument, it should be a, a goal. Um, there's this whole... I think especially throughout the 80s with MIDI, 
there became this sort of uh, aesthetic of, of uh, machines as, as purely as tools. And um, the artist has the idea for the music and the song and the, the different parts. And there became this very structured look at electronic music, this very structured approach, right down to if you open an old, uh, you know, a lot of older MIDI uh, sequencer software, there will literally be uh, almost like templates that are very uh, pop or rock oriented with, you know, your bass drum and your, your snare drum and your lead guitar track and your rhythm track and all these things. It's, it's just very, it's very generic and, and <clears throat> in my opinion, kind of off-putting, um, especially if you're looking to create something new and something uh, that people haven't already heard many times. I think it's also about inviting folks to think about music uh, with a very open mind and not come in with a predetermined idea about what music is or how music is made. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, from the beginning, I think we looked to artists that were not maybe in the popular domain. So, like, for example, with the first series of records that we did, the Shared System series, I mean, at that point... I don't think many people knew, I don't think the greater population of music listeners knew who Keith Fullerton Whitman, Whitman was. I mean, sure, a lot, I'm sure a lot of our customers did, but I don't think it was really something that was on the tips of everyone's tongue. Uh, I guess, yeah, and, and it's this idea that music doesn't have to be some particular thing. Um, being open to, to everything that people send in to us. I mean, we get so much music. And, and I think to a lot of people, they would say, that's not music, that's just bleeps and bloops. But I think after a while of, of, of trying to appreciate all these different types of music, you really can start to see what is, makes a good record of bleeps and bloops versus a not good record of bleeps and bloops. On that note, your website speaks of pushing boundaries and discovering unfound sounds. Can you expound upon why this is important to you personally? You wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, think, I think it's kind of what we weren't even talking about. To some degree, I, I mean, I think uh, I think that there's just there's this there's this thing that happens, and I think especially if you if you're in our industry. And, you know, we have to go to some trade shows and stuff like that to try to find people to sell what we make. And when you're at these trade shows, you're, you're surrounded by, by uh, what the world considers to be music, which is a very specific thing, actually. Even though the world is huge and there's so many people in it, what most people consider to be music is a very, a very uh, small um, cross-section of what's possible in music. You see this very commonly. Um, and it kind of goes back to my mentioning of, of, of the, the MIDI format in the 80s and early 90s where every, you know, there's this very like prescribed allotment of, of uh, how you would use the different areas of the frequency spectrum. You know, bass drum, snare drum, bass guitar, saxophone, so on and so forth. Everything is very structured. Um, and so I, I think to some degree that statement is sort of trying to push back a little bit at the industry that we are in. Making musical instruments 
you have to be prepared to be put into that environment. You know, the Guitar Centers, the Sam Ashes, Sweetwaters. I mean, these places, they're fine. They supply musicians with things that they need. But when you're actually in that industry and you're at the trade show or, or you're at the, uh, the shop where they might carry what you make, you really, that's where you really start to see that structure. And you, you just, I don't know. We, I think I just had this urge to sort of push back at it a little bit. Like, well, we can make musical instruments, but we don't have to subscribe to all that. So this next question is more for you, Kelly. You mentioned that you host a women's synth meetup here. Would you mind talking a little bit about the activities and purpose of this group? Yeah, it's a women's and non-binary OCOST study group. So the OCOST is our small standalone synth. It's a desktop synth, but you can patch it into your Eurorack system. And there were a few reasons I started the group. Um, one is I wanted to carve out some focused time to learn our synth. Uh, it's just sometimes can be hard for um, me to spend time with the instruments because my job and goals are really to grow the company and lead the company and support our staff. So I figured if I had some carved out time, I'd be more accountable to studying. Um, but then also it really is about creating access to our instruments for all kinds of folks. Um, and so one, what we do with this group is we loan out synths to folks who, um, they're all musicians in town. Many of them I met through Girls Rock Asheville, which is a local nonprofit that I was on the board of and volunteered with that has a camp for girls, trans kids, and non-binary kids uh, that does empowerment through music education. So a lot of the folks in the group have been volunteers with Girls Rock. And we meet once a month, and it's not like I am not leading the group. It's very much so um, just a learning environment that everyone contributes to. So we might come in with a question about a certain section of the instrument, like how does the tempo input work? Or we might come in having watched a video and wanting to recreate that patch and then take that patch to a new place. Uh, so everyone shares a patch in every meetup, and then we, uh, with each other's permission, go ahead and modify each other's patches and see what happens, and then more questions come from that, and then we write down all of our questions and come back to them and try to answer those questions by creating new patches for the next get-together. And the last time, we just uh, plugged all of our OCOs into a mixer and had a jam. <laughs> that was fun. No, that sense. Oh, yeah, we call it the Okostra. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Whoa. Nice. Love it. Yeah. Next yeah. level. Yeah. So, and then um, we're also doing some other things with the Okost right now, uh, including a new workshop that we will be offering at Make Noise probably starting early in the fall and it'll be a free workshop for anyone who wants to come out and learn about the O-Coast. 
Um, and it'll also be a great introduction into some very basic modular synth um, functions and and approaches and vocab. Uh, but it's just a way for us to invite people into what we're doing and learn about the O-Coast and hopefully be inspired to connect with others through what they learn. Cool. So what can we expect from your upcoming talk and performance at Black Mountain College Museum and Arts Center? We'll see. That's a great <laughs> question for Walker. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> At this point in the interview, Tony went downstairs to fetch Walker Farrell, a fellow Make Noise employee who's been responsible for planning much of the details on the upcoming talk and performance. Well, we have uh, our newest product is the Morphogene, and we're gonna do um, we're gonna do a talk about the types of things that you can do with the Morphogene, which include um, or actually, I guess I'd say that the the overview of the Morphogene would be that it uses a uh, a recording algorithm to create sounds from sounds that already exist, taking a sound that comes into it or that you load into it and using its raw material to create new sounds. Um, and it does it in a couple in a couple of ways. One is inspired by tape music of the uh, mid 20th century, music concrete, um, tape collage, things like that. And then it also has the capability to do a lot of micro sound techniques, which are, um, which were used a lot in computer music in the '80s and beyond. Um, yeah, so that, that that definitely covers it. I, I think we'll probably also to discuss a bit um, the process of development of the morphogene, because I, I find that uh, some that some folks will be interested in how we came to develop a. Uh, tape and microsound music module for the modular synthesizer. Um, not just why we did it, but also the, the actual process of doing it, the long and painful process. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll follow that up with a few short performances uh, using modular synthesizers and focusing on what the morphogene can do. Uh, and we'll, we'll, Tony and I will both do short performances and we'll probably have a couple other members of our of our crew here who will do things and uh, show a number of different kind of approaches to the way to make music and sound with with that piece of gear. Cool. Sounds awesome. Looking forward to that. Um, that about covers it. Is there anything else you wanted to say or add to all that we discussed? Maybe I should add that, maybe I should add that there are currently artists that are subverting MIDI I know about this. I was merely discussing MIDI as a, as a, a sort of uh, generic structure that seemed to take over electronic music through the 80s and early 90s. But I, I do know that there are artists that are subverting it, and I appreciate that and put that out there. We'll do. <laughs> All right, well, Tony, Kelly, Walker, thank you guys so much for taking the time to do this interview. Thanks. Do you want Roxy to howl for the interview?
Up now at Black Mountain College Museum and Art Center is an exhibition titled Frank Hirsch, Marking Space and Place, curated by Brian Butler. Hirsch is a Mexico-based painter and illustrator who studied at Black Mountain College. He came up to help with installation and to give a gallery talk for the exhibition opening. A tall and amicable man, he left an impression on the entire staff of the museum. Frank Hirsch was born in 1929 in Wichita Falls, Texas. His father was a stage manager at Wichita Falls Municipal Auditorium, and through this he was exposed to a diverse range of music, performing arts, and visual arts. Hirsch was also exposed to numerous itinerant art exhibitions brought about by the Work Progress Administration, who sought to endorse the arts as part of a cultural enrichment program during the Great Depression. At an early age, Frank was also influenced by Frederick Catherwood's illustrations of the Mayan ruins, which instilled within him a lifelong interest in Mexican archaeology and architecture. Hirsch attended Black Mountain College from 1949 to 1950, where his advisor was the notable mathematician Max Dane. He recalls the moment he arrived on campus. When I got there, I got off the bus. I don't know how I got out there now. But Eric Reiner came over to me, he was an administrator, and he said, Frank, he said, we expect you to act as a decent human being and stay out of the girls' dorm. That was the introduction to Black Mountain College. And, and then there was a party that night to, for all the students and the teachers there was that, that night where you got to know where you met everybody. Hirsch took painting classes with Joe Fiore and Pete Jennerjohn, two painters whose resolute artistic commitment strengthened his own conviction to become a painter. The important thing to me was whenever I got to Black Mountain and uh, we had in the community house uh, a, a welcoming committee. We had some snacks or something and where everybody met each, each other. The, the new, 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 the new students and the faculty and the old students and everything. <clears throat> and after, and Joe Fiore had put up a, a, a collection of his paintings in there, and it was extremely exciting to me to see his work. He was extremely innov innovative with his work and everything. And after everybody left. I sat on the floor and stayed and looked at Joe's paintings. And I knew then I was at the place where I really needed to be. And, and with Joe, Joe would come in. We, I painted in my room, my little study, and Joe would come around and talk about art, you know, what I'm doing, what I was doing, and other, other things about art, yeah. So it was really, it was that type of education you know, at Black Mountain. It was free, and it was all, there was no really programs. It was all worked out with the advisors, with everybody, because everybody was so extremely interested in writing or drawing and painting and in physics and everything. And we were all always ate together and always had the all of the, activities together, so it was like a community. Hirsch went on to receive a Bachelor of Fine Arts from the University of Texas in 1953. Then in 1956 he received two scholarships to study mural painting in Mexico City. 
A few years later, Hirsch launched his own company, Artes Teatrales, where he illustrated children's books and worked on set design and artwork for live black and white TV programming. Later, he joined the company Telepelikilas, where he did designs for various cartoon series such as Rocky and Bullwinkle, Fractured Fairy Tales, Peabody's Improbable History, and King Leonardo. Hirsch returned to the U.S. for 15 years as an art educator and a technical and medical illustrator, but afterward he permanently returned to Mexico in 1976. There he did something that might perk the ears of those familiar with Black Mountain College. He opened a private art school modeled on BMC in Santiago de Querétaro and established the Fine Arts Institute and the Mexican Cultural Institute for the Universidad de Valle de México, the largest private university in the Mexico City metropolitan area. With a history of kindling affinities between the arts and education, Hirsch has an aptitude for innovative cross-disciplinary thinking. His works evince sweeping chromatic narratives that transcend the delimiting nature of outlines and borders. He's also drawn analogy between musical composition and his process of painting. You can play a record now, and you play that same record a year from now and ten years from now, and if you find something new in it, that's a good, that's a good piece of music, okay? A painting handles the same way. But you can find something in the painting that you like it sometimes, that you haven't seen before, so that's, that's another good point. So if a painting is not just limited to those, to having a few things here or done, done, done like that, then it doesn't have any much of a, uh, much of a reason to be in reality. But if it has some profundity to it, then, then, then the painting can stand on its own. And it doesn't need any explanations or anything at all, because different people are going to read things differently. Hirsch retired in 1988 and continues to create artwork today. His paintings share many qualities with abstract expressionism, such as untamed gestural strokes, broad swaths and splashes of color, and a sense of motion and depth, all affirming the artist's inner intuitive feelings welling up during the creative flow. His works also share the language of abstractionism, which has a sensibility for the perception of color as form. Yet his paintings evade immediate classification by having divergent qualities. There's an intentionality within his pieces, many of which are abstract Mexican landscapes where horizons remain ambiguous in tract and tone, and where strata of rock are rendered by imbricated strips of warm hues. So I had already started before I went to Black Mountain working in in that particular area, you know, the abstractionism and uh, of non-objective work. But uh, when I went to Black Mountain, that's when I went wholeheartedly over to completely non-objective work. Throughout his life, Hirsch has remained true to his Black Mountain College roots, maintaining a commitment to higher education in life and a methodology of experimentation and process in art. This is Carmelo Pampolonio, and thank you for tuning in to Black Mountain College Radio. More episodes are planned for the near future, and will include more interviews, arts updates, biographies, and historical and experimental segments. For more information, go to blackmountaincollege.org.